And now for your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PR with This Old Marketing. Take it away, boys. Well, hello, my friends. This is Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 238 of PNR's This Old Marketing, recorded June 11th, 2020. And with me, my good friend, my colleague, and the next champion baker of all things bread, Mr. Joe Polizzi. How are you, my friend? I don't get, the, I do not get the reference. What's the reference? The baker. Isn't everybody like a champion, like sourdough? I saw you making bagels the other day. Oh, I saw geez. you. Yeah, I don't. I, I, you know, I've been doing so many things during the quarantine. Oh yes, you're baking you're just a just, man of talents, a man of multi talents. One of them. <laughs> baking is just one of them. Thank you. Yes, I've been learning all sorts of new things. Yeah, baking yeah. being one of them. You're like, I mean, you uh, didn't you make like cinnamon rolls or something like that? Or we did. Well, yeah. we did bagels twice, and one yeah. of them was a cinnamon. Well, the thing is, is it was a bagel, but in the bageling process, it's separated. <laughs> is there a bageling process? Do, do then, they call it oh, the yeah, bageling it's process? The, it's called, yeah, that is the official term. It's bageling. I see. And in the bageling process, it's separated, so it became one long breadstick. Still good. Still tasty. Not a bagel. Yeah. Not, Not a bagel. bagel. Why, no, what, think, is it the shape that makes it a bagel, or uh, is it? It's the process. It is the is the bageling the bageling process. The bageling okay. process that makes it a bagel. Because if you don't call it bageling, it's not a bagel. I see. That's kind of how it works. I see. But is that so, all you need to do? Okay. Is it, in other words, if I, if, do all I need to do is just make some bread and call it bageling? No, and no, I've made no. Bagels? It's, it's specific. It's it's some yeasts and doughs and things like that that go into <laughs> it that that make it the bageling. But no, no. Here's here's pro tip. Pro tip on bageling. Okay. So the the instructions, the bageling instructions said you basically take basically a long like doughy breadstick and then you make it into a bend it into a circle and connect it at the top, making the round bagel, right? And then I see. you go and yep. you boil it, you boil it and then you go ahead and put it in the oven. Here's the thing. You don't, you're not, you shouldn't do that. You know what you do? Because what happens is, in, in some part of the process, either the boiling process or putting it in the oven bageling process, it separates. It ends up looking like a U. And nobody wants to eat a U bagel. Nobody wants to. They want an O bagel. Of so, course. So how do you deal with this conundrum? This is an mm. enigma trapped in, an, in a conundrum. You don't even know what's going on here. So, <laughs> so how do you deal with this? So yes. what we do is, you just take one piece of dough, one round piece of dough, flatten it a little bit, and you stick a hole in the middle. Brilliant, right? And I'm looking at the directions like, why do your bageling directions say to make this breadstick thing? Ah, right. Instead and then, of and just circle taking it around. O. Yeah, just taking the O and punching a hole through the middle, and it always stays an O. So that's what we did the second time. And the bageling process was a success in try two, but try one it wasn't even bageling. It was something else. <laughs> well, the finer points of bageling. Uh, <laughs> Can you yeah. name an episode? Episode 238. All about bageling. Bageling. Bageling and you. The top ba- 10 big bageling. tips for bageling in North America. <laughs> um, how have you been? I, you know, I'm doing well. It's, um, uh, I, I, it's been a... You know, we're slowly reopening here in in all everything else that's going on in the world. It just seems like a bit of a chaotic time, generally speaking. And, um, 
you know, aside from everything going on in the world and, and taking time to listen and connect and, and do all of those things that, um, uh, that, uh, that I wanted to do, um, generally work has been much better. It's been, um, I've been having a good time sort of rediscovering some new content creation and, and yeah, I, it's been, I've been good the last couple of weeks here, you know, other than the obvious, right? You know, we were talking beforehand and I, and I really want to believe this uh, being the ever optimist that I am. And you are too. We're both pretty optimistic people. Absolutely. So I've done three or four podcast interviews this week and, and everyone they mention about our current environment and all the stuff that's going on right now. And I've just been trying to be positive, saying I my hope is that we look back at 2020 and instead of everyone saying it's like the worst year ever and that it never happened, that maybe 2020 is the year that things changed. For That's the right. Better. Like that was the year. Like we can look back in 2030. You're going to say, remember 2020 and how bad we thought it was? That was the year that it all changed. That was the year that the greatest things ever happened. Um, yeah. So that's what I'm hoping for. Yeah, I will tell you this. I, you know, as I mentioned, I, you know, I've been doing a lot of listening, and and I went and talked to my pastor, <clears throat> who um, it's that we belong to uh, a church here in L.A. that is predominantly uh, an African American church, um, but it's a, a a wonderful, wonderful church we've been going to for years. And I went to my pastor, and I said. I asked, you know, what is, you know, I just want to listen to you know, everything that was going on. And he said something really interesting to me. He said, you know, protests are always about hope. Um, nobody ever protested something they didn't think could change. Yep. And I think that's a, that's, I think that's a really hopeful message, um, you know, in, in, in all of this that's going on right now is that, you know, there is possible, the possibility for change and, I think it's probably never been, you know, in so many ways, this year is becoming about a pivot point for change. And, you know, I mean, goodness gracious, it just seems like every single thing points to a pivot point for this year being, you know, a different direction for everything, politics, business, um, industry, uh, social justice, you know, all of that, um, culture, everything seems to point to this year being just a, a year of change. And I agree with you. I think it can be, this year can be truly one that is, that, that, that we'll look back on and go, that was the year that everything changed. I don't disagree with you. I'm starting to get more optimistic about things. And, you know, once, once everyone realized that there's different groups out there and, and rioters are one group, actually splinters of different groups, and you've got um, you've got 95% of this stuff going on is ex- incredibly positive. Yep. And you're right. I think in, in, in most cases, all, what we want to do is listen and not talk and think we need to have the say over everything. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm like you, you talked about before the show. In, in most cases, we need to be listen and open, and I had a conversation with both my sons about a lot of this stuff going on, and all I did was listen. I just wanted to listen to what, the, what was going on with them, what they right. were hearing, what was going on. I don't have all the answers. No. I think that's where you get into trouble. You think you have all the answers. And at one time in my life, I thought I had all the answers. That was a bad time. <laughs> nobody, nobody wants that. But but yeah, But so besides that, our... I've been I've been hearing that things um, like they're getting some concerns over the over the vid 
for over COVID a little bit. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> the vid. <laughs> The vi- have you have you become familiar enough with it that you can call it by its first name? Well, now? here's the it- thing. Look, it. This is not a joke, but yeah. I do shorten my words because I like to be efficient. So we were calling it the Rona, because right, okay, because it's short. It's short for Corona. The, sure, the Rona. Right? Why not the Co? Why or or, or, or I don't the know. Co- the the, okay. the vid right. just seemed. I have I have a friend, okay. a buddy of mine, who just started calling it the vid. Like, so the he, Rona is the is the virus, and the vid is the disease. Is that what you're going? I with? I think that's what it is. Okay, but but, but I, I think people get it confused. It's sort of like bageling in North America. You get it really <laughs> confused. But uh, but yeah, I I see that there's some there's some concern out in California or or uh, what is it? Well, we're reopening. I mean, we're you regardless. know uh, you know regardless. You know, I mean, we you know, it's kind of funny. We talked about this uh, a few shows ago, where it's basically you know, once you start down the path of reopening, you kind of got to go, right? I mean, it's kind of like jumping off of a diving board. There's no, you know, at a certain point, there's no going back. Yeah. And and so I think that's what you're seeing here in many ways. Now, look, you know, if you look at the curve, it's definitely um, it's, it's you know, we have, quote unquote, flattened the curve um, for most of California. There is some spikes are some spikes rather uh, get my grammar straight um, that we're seeing here in L.A. County. But they're small. Um, they're small in comparison. Um, you know, I, we have much less concern, let's put it this way here. And by the way, much more, um, sort of guidelines about what we can do and what we can't do. And quite, in fact, it's, it's rather infuriating, um, the inconsistency of messaging, um, that we're getting from local government, you know, local, like, yeah, local, state, national, probably the worst just, communication that we've ever it's, seen. It's really anything. bad marketing. Yeah. It's really, really bad marketing and communication. I mean, just, you know, the idea of, you know, here in California, I don't know if you have this in Ohio or not, but we have this thing called the, you know, you you can have active uh, pods. <laughs> so, you know, in some counties, you can have eight in your active intimate pod. Um, in some, you can have 10. Um, you can have groups over to your house of eight but you can have protests of a hundred and so (laughs) you've got people now sending out invites to the barbecue at their house saying i'm going to be throwing a protest uh next saturday oh my gosh that's so funny (laughs) bring a sign basically you know it's yeah it's it's just the inconsistency is really hard to swallow sometimes but you know generally speaking People are feeling a lot better uh, about things, and with noted exception, like you mentioned, um, you know, I think we're gonna, I think we're gonna see a bit of a turnaround here in the summertime. A turnaround in a positive way or in a negative mm-hmm. way? Positive in way a t- in a positive way. Here, at least here in California, you know, for South Carolina and some of the places where they're seeing sort of a what they're now calling a second wave. I don't know. I don't know what happens, but but here in California, I think. Um, Generally speaking, we're doing pretty darn good. Yeah, I, I think we're the same in Ohio. You know, I mean, we talked about this before. We were kind of the front runners of with California in closing yeah. a lot of things yeah. down, and they've they've kept it very flat for a long period of time. And so, so we're we're opening everything up. Everybody's feeling good from that perspective. I don't like the inconsistency in wearing masks. Depending on where you're at, you'll get people in very close proximity doing almost like nothing ever happened. And then other ways, yep. you've got people being fairly responsible. And for the most part, we have that here. We, we've got, yeah. you know, high 
uh, a high percentage of compliance with masks, and I don't mind wear. I don't mind wearing the mask. I found some of those gaiters, you know, those those neck things. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I've heard good things. That, Are those comfortable? They're so comfortable. They're so really? much more comfortable for me than the than the sort of masks around the ears. So you wear them um, all the time. You wear them inside too, just because it feels comfortable. You wear. Them I know. <laughs> no, I don't do that. Um, but I will say this. I look rather sporting in a gator. Uh, you know, no it looks like because I've always looked good in a turtleneck. I, I mean, when I, you know, for whatever reason, it is like an extended have, turtleneck. It it's is. Like you're just it's, pulling, it's a dicky. You're just pulling it's it up like your a, eyeballs. It's like a dicky. It, it really is. It's you know, I'm old enough to remember what a dicky is uh, in the safe sense of that word. Um, and yeah, it's it's there. <laughs> I can't believe you just qualified it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know. For the you know for the young kids out there you gotta you gotta make sure that this is you could be like qualified. What, what did he just say? Yeah. What, <laughs> what is that? Rewind. This, what did he call it? I thought this was PG show. Yeah. Oh anyway. my goodness. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. Look at uh, it's hard not to ignore what's going on in, in Alabama, Arizona, South Carolina. I mean, you're you. We're, it's really not a second wave. They're just getting their first wave. Of this, well, fair enough. Yeah. I so mean, that's the well. Are you other. You know, it's. I talked about this before. We got to live with the dance for. We got to do the dance for a while. It's all yeah. good. We yeah. can still live a regular life. It's just sometimes we got to get on the dance floor and sometimes we got to step off the dance floor until things settle down a little bit. So there you go, boys and girls. And bageling. <laughs> and yeah, learn how to do your bageling <laughs> properly. Punch a hole right. in it. Should we uh, should we talk marketing? We should know. talk Maybe. some marketing because there's a lot going on actually. Um, a lot happened in the couple of weeks since we last gathered. Um, our little friends here together on this little show. Um, and so we'll open with our top of the show, which of course is the big news item that we sort of think sets a theme for the show. And it comes to us courtesy of Adweek, um, ironically here, uh, because the headline, of course, is that Adweek has been acquired uh, by Shamrock Capital. Uh, the deal to significantly expand reach of leading media and events companies, says the headline. And of course, you would expect that coming from Adweek um, because that is their side of the story. The uh, article opens up by saying Shamrock Capital, a Los Angeles based investment firm, and I am familiar with Shamrock, with approximately $1.9 billion of assets exclusively in the media, entertainment, and communication sectors, has reached an agreement with Behringer Capital to acquire Adweek, the leading media and events company serving the brand marketing community. Not sure about that last sentence, but let's go ahead with it. Uh, <laughs> the news was announced today by Jeffrey Litvak, CEO of Adweek, who will continue to lead the company. The investment bank, C.G. Petzker Prunier, part of the Can Accord Genuity, and that is a mouthful of words of bank bankers advised Adweek and Behringer Capital on the transaction. Financial terms were not disclosed. The article goes on to basically uh, launch all sorts of platitudes about why this is the most amazing thing ever since uh, bageling. Um, what did you think of the deal and what do you think of, uh, you know, Adweek uh, now, Mr. Polizzi? Well, I mean, it's it's probably not going to be the last time that Adweek is bought and sold. <laughs> right. I mean, let's just be honest. Yeah. Let's yeah. just look at a trend line, uh, which is fine. Uh, and it's, it's the first, uh, I don't want to say it's the first this domino. Is the third, because, this is the third time, yes, if I'm uh, I thought for sure the second, uh, so it's, it's just, uh, so is this the third? No, launch, sell, sold, sold, second sold. Okay. Right? So yep. anyways, third sold is like 2022 or something like that. Yeah. Okay. So, gotcha. Um, look at, uh, we're going to see more and more of this. There's no doubt we've been talking about it on the show. 
Uh, I think what's interesting, there's a couple things in this release that was from Adweek, of course, that, um, you know, being in publishing, you just have to smile a little bit. Right. Adweek's editorial and business operations remain unchanged. Okay. Yeah, Just want right. you to let that soak in for a little bit. Yeah, it'll exactly. be unchanged. Read for that about, again slowly. <laughs> about 48 hours, it'll be unchanged. Look, yeah. I've been involved in a lot of these suckers. They always say editorial and business operations are going to be unchanged until they change them a week later. Look, it, so it's fine. Just don't put it. There's no need to put it in the release. Everyone knows what's coming. Just don't do it. Um, what is interesting, though, when you talk about audience so Adweek launched in 1979 and now attracts 6 million unique monthly visitors, blah, 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 4.3 million social media followers. Who cares? And its magazine boasts a readership of more than 150,000. That's permission-based, probably signed up, got all their data. That's the value right of there. Of course. Yep. Not the four point. They should lead with that. Not the four. See, people like big numbers like 6 million, 4.3 million. You know what interests me? 150,000. That's key targeted audience where I've had a relationship with those people for a long time. I know them, can target content to them, uh, drive different monetization strategies from that group. That's why this thing happened. <clears throat> That's why you will see more and more of it. I don't know if you have any general take. I'm just pontificating. I, you know, I, I think it would be very interesting for. Uh, Shamrock to do what PE companies normally do. Um, this is not, by the way, Shamrock's a little bit different here in that they tend to hang on to their investments a little longer than most. But but um, Shamrock, it would be very interesting to do to see what PE companies would normally do here, which is to basically do exactly what you said: change it up, polish the rock, and spin it out. Yeah, you know, and <clears throat> spin it out to somebody else. What, what would be interesting? would be for them to polish the rock, get it all set, spin it out and have a brand buy it. You know, have have somebody actually purchase it that uh, that that can actually leverage that audience in a much better way. Um, and actually have it compete really again. Um, cuz that's something I think it's been challenging for them is to actually compete in this space because you know, we've we've talked about, and we will talk about later on this show. We'll talk about ad age in in a bit. You know, just from a, uh, an article standpoint. But um, you know, the advertising business. You know, why they these magazines, these B two B magazines, which is what these things are. Um, why they haven't pivoted in the you know you know the shifting sands, let's call it, of the world of advertising. And really moved to different places. I mean, we've talked about it many times on this show. There just hasn't been any move. They've just sort of, you know, it, they've been intransigent in terms of their, you know, for refusal to, to, to shift off of their, you know, paid media, paid media, paid media. It's all about media, 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 media. And they just, you know, they just ran out of things to talk about that people care about. If, was there any... Uh Amount in and what they paid for this is this all private? Do you know? I have not found a number yet. I have uh, all of the all of the articles that I've seen on this have said um, you know deals were not disclosed. I'm sure it'll leak out sometime. You know, somebody will have some estimate or guesstimate yeah. about what it was, and it'll probably be somebody who didn't get the deal. Um, you know, because by the way, I'm sure Shamrock was the highest bidder here. I'm sure there was. I'm sure there were multiple 
people bidding for. I don't know. For, I, I, I don't know about that. I would no? not. You don't no, think so? I would not. I, I would not uh, say that that was a, a full round bagel. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that would be a thing. Um, yeah. Because the there are there are not as many buyers out there for this type of property as you would normally think. Well, that's there, a, there, that's that's a fair point. There are now. Here's the thing. Here's uh, what was the character in um, Richard Gere's character in Pretty Woman? You know, the guy he, yeah, he basically sure. went in and bought a company and then... Yeah, leverage buyout, basically. Yeah, leverage yeah. buyout. Same thing. So this is... Yeah. And, and I don't want to be um, cold and heartless on this, but <laughs> let's just say that a company like a Shamrock comes in, buys Adweek. They have, according to this release, they have 40 new products... And let's say another 10 to 20 legacy products. So let's say you have 50 to 60 different products that all have, all the audience are tied in one way to another, but you have exclusive audiences for each one of these, or you could separate them in some way. What if you sold off each of these pieces to different brands out there? I mean, it would be unbelievable. You could absolutely do that. You could sign, you could, you could sell Brand Week and Next Tech separately and CMO Symposium and the Institute for Brand Marketing, sell that back to IBM, you know, all that stuff could happen. Yeah. And the only reason I'm saying this is that when if you're a brand out there and you're thinking about the possibilities, that that's a that's a possibility. That you don't have to go and buy an ad week and get all of it. You could go in with a consortium, as you've said many times, and say, I want this piece, and you take that piece, and you take that piece. Right. So, anyways, That's I'm just right. saying, marketers just aren't thinking of these things, and they they should. It's yeah, a big opportunity. Well, and, well, in many cases, we 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 marketing, you know, and and in all fairness, this becomes not my pay grade, right? You know what I mean? I mean, you know, it's no it's no surprise to anybody listening to this show, or really any marketer anywhere, that marketing in most organizations is not considered you know, at that level in the business, right? You know, very, very few uh, businesses out there are getting, you know, acquisition recommendations from their CMO, right? I mean, it's just not, it just doesn't happen that, that way. Um, And, and, you know, so I think in many cases, marketers are just like, it's not my thing, right? I I get it and I like it, but I, I don't know. I don't even, I wouldn't even know what to do. Um, and so I think in many ways, you know, this was something I actually talked about, um, on, uh, on the weekly wrap, um, this week, it was an article about how publishing media companies are looking now beginning. I mean, this is something you've known for years, of course, but how publishing and media companies are now shifting to a more portfolio based model, right? Where they're moving to, you know, e-commerce and subscriptions and advertising and looking at their business as much more of a portfolio of little businesses, you know, I mean, duh, right. We've been talking about that for years, but the, 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 like it's hitting the mainstream meet business media now. And, you know, and my point on the weekly wrap was this is, this is what we're doing. We should be doing, right? You know, you look at the Amazons and Netflixes and and these platform-based companies, Disney's, you know, all of these businesses that are creating a multi-leveled platform portfolio of little businesses, revenue models, to be able to withstand and be resilient to things like COVID virus and economies and all that sort of thing. And that's the new, you know, that that's that's the new model. And 
for marketing people to go, oh, marketing should drive that is just, they're just like, ah, I don't even know how to begin to do that. But we should. We absolutely should. That's what we do. We're marketers. We create markets where none existed before. And anyway, I'll get off on it. Well, no, no, you're, no, you're exactly right. Here's the difference. You've had a you you've had many different parts of a publishing background. I grew up in publishing. We know right. this firsthand. Before you launch a new content brand, editorial brand, whatever you want to call it, you look to see if one's available for purchase before you spend the three years of agony getting this thing to break even. <laughs> right. That's what, uh, it, it, it's right. always like you have a you have a good idea for a new cross brand or sub brand or. Uh, whatever targeted audience piece and you put it together and you, you hand it to your uh your ceo or your group publisher or whatever and they say well is there one out there we could purchase before yeah. we do any any kind of organic launch and you That's say right. well, i didn't look at that and they'll, they'll look at you like you're an idiot yeah what exactly. do you mean you're in publishing <laughs> what do you mean you didn't look at that are you but here's the thing in marketing especially in in content marketing they all look at launch and stuff Oh, yeah. we got to have our own unique voice and we can do it better than anyone else. And yeah, okay, well, you do that for 12 to 18 months to the five <laughs> right. people that listen to your lousy podcast. <laughs> and then you'll be looking for a job or you can learn the art of MA, yeah. like really, really smart marketers are. So if you work in an enterprise, you need to have somebody on your team that understands mergers and acquisitions, especially the acquisitions part. And if you are a small, medium-sized marketer or consultant, you better learn. You better learn because in, in five to 10 years, it's going to be a core part of, of the marketing practice. Absolutely. A hundred percent agreed on that. I mean, it is, it is what marketing is becoming in many ways is, is you know, the acquisition of talent and the acquisition of technology and the acquisition of audiences. And yeah, it's, uh, there we go. All right. Should we move Nobody's on to listening. our next? Is this, <laughs> is this thing on? This thing is not on. Nobody's listening. We've yeah. been talking about this for ten years. Robert. I know. I mean, well, you know, more than I that. Mean, yeah, more than that. We met in two thousand eight. You and I were both talking about it before then. Yeah. Nobody cares. Does anybody yeah. care? I'm going to ask my listeners. Do you care? It, Do you even care? Hashtag. Hashtag. Do what? you even? Hashtag. hashtag <laughs> Hashtag Quibby. All right. <laughs> We're moving on to the next All right, let's part of our show, which is the segment of the show where Joe and I pick a couple of articles uh, that resonated with us over the last couple of weeks and bring them to you. The first one, have to give a big hat tip to Carl Yeah, um, He sent this over via Twitter, so thank you very much, Carl, for this. Um, this is fascinating. The uh, article comes to us from the BBC, um, and the headline here is Microsoft will replace journalists with robots. Uh, the article opens up by saying Microsoft is to replace dozens of contact contract rather journalists on its MSN website and use automated systems to select news stories U.S. and U.K. media are reporting. The curation of stories from news organizations and selection of headlines and pictures for the MSN site is currently done by journalists. 
Artificial intelligence will start to perform these new production tasks, sources told the Seattle Times. Microsoft said it was part of an evaluation of its business. The U.S. tech giant said in a statement, Like all companies, we evaluate our business on a regular basis. This can result in increased investment in some places and from time to time redeployment in others. These decisions are not the result of the current pandemic. Uh, the article goes on to talk about, um, not for very much longer, but basically a couple of more sentences to say around 50 uh, news producers uh, will lose their job as it replaces it with artificial intelligence and software. What say you? Is this a canary in the coal mine? Is this the first of things to come? Or is this just something silly that Microsoft is experimenting with? No, no, it's not silly at all. Uh, and by the way, we've been talking about this uh, on and off. We've had a number of articles on this over the past seven years. So this is new. Any marketer that and or writer, journalist that would say, oh my God, I can't believe it, is an idiot. So let's just <laughs> let's just tell it how it is. This is happening. The more mundane tasks that happen, uh, you're not gonna, uh, journalists, content writers are not gonna do that. We For very creative storytelling, I think in a lot of cases, long form writing, um, obviously you, you would like, at least for right now, you want human beings, but there's a good portion of the news, especially the way news is set up now, and you have AI software that can go out and pick uh, what uh, the audience is interested in already and scour the internet automatically in two seconds for what's going on and what's hot and then fill that in on the news site. Uh, frankly, they there's no way a human being can do that at that kind of speed. So it's, I don't know. Are you surprised? Shouldn't be right. I mean, no, I'm not surprised at all. I mean, the, the here's my take on this: is you know, people will read into this and and you know, and basically have pictures of the Matrix in their head, right? You know, with you know, uh, w- with us all playing the role of Keanu Reeves and trying to fight off the 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 robot technology, and you know, one of the things that I think is on the positive side of this is. You know, and this is a way to stress test your own, you know, capabilities, right? Which is when I when I talk to clients about a content strategy, <clears throat> I say there are four basic things. This is especially true in B two B, where you're talking about thought leadership or moving ideas forward, not necessarily fiction or or poetry or 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 those sorts of things. But I say there are four questions you have to ask yourself about where do you want to play. The you know, and the four questions are one, what happened. Two, why did it happen? Three, what does it mean? And four, what can I do about it? And if you're a journalist and you're only working in the first question, you're going to get replaced. I mean, basically, there is nothing that stops a robot or AI from being able to answer the question, what happened? Because it's just there. It's easy to do, right? So that that means if your job is to summarize football games, summarize baseball games, tell the weather, um, you know, talk about the crime statistics in the city, talk about numbers that are being put out by, you know, various organizations and basically relay what happened, you're going to get, you can just, you you might as well just move along now because you will be replaced by software because it's just too easy. The second question gets a little harder. Right, which which is why did it happen? 
maybe you start to get replaced there, right? Because they they can look up the, you know, you know, previous reports of this and why something happened. You know, why did the weather change? Why did the, you know, uh, you know, why did the Dodgers win their 50th game? You know, whatever it is, those kind of things can happen. The third and fourth, if you spend your time in the third and fourth question, you're much safer. Because what does it mean and why, you know, what can I do about it? Are re, remain at this point at least in history a human concern because you have to be able to apply wisdom to that and the way that you apply wisdom and creativity to that is to be able to synthesize those facts together in a way that artificial intelligence just can't do yet and so you know I think that's that that would be my advice to these reporters or anyone writing right now is if that are worried that robots are coming to take their job is ask yourself where do you play right where where do you play right now and that'll tell you the answer that's uh, i i have a little tear in my eye from that description <laughs> that's so good that is so good and i don't know if a lot of our journalist friends that we know uh have have looked at that kind of analysis and asked themselves i uh, hopefully yeah hopefully I hope this so. is not a surprise <clears throat> no I, you know but even, you know, but even look at the article. Uh, one, oh, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Oh, I can't. It was the the one article was talking about the the journalist. By the way, this article, the article that is in the BBC, could have been written by a software, and we wouldn't. Know. I think it was. Yeah, I, I think it was actually. Oh, some. Okay, here it is. The article says some sacked journalists warned that artificial intelligence may not be fully familiar with strict editorial guidelines and could yeah. end up letting through inappropriate stories. Let me let me tell you, if you set up the constructs in the software for what should pass and what shouldn't, right? they they just follow the program. Absolutely. And then when Soft, they, software can learn how to use the Oxford comma, for exact, sure. Exactly. Well, exact, okay. Oh, they let this article let, you know, don't, went through. Because somebody, human, a human being, mind you, didn't set up the guidelines so the computer could understand it. And then, or you either <laughs> let the computer learn on its own, which is AI, or you go in there and have a human being said, okay, no more of that. So I'm just saying, I think it's easier for software to do it than journalists. Because That's there's right. no emotions. There's no emotions. Oh, yeah. I love that story. It should run. Well, yeah. Software doesn't care. Software cares about what's trending now, what's going to work, who's going to engage <laughs> right. in it, what audience exactly. do I want, and they play the numbers. What have I been told to do? That is that is what yeah. software cares about. What have I been told to do? And that's why you can't program software for wisdom yet, right? We haven't reached that point in the intelligence of AI yet because it can't it can't originate and synthesize those facts into wisdom, pure wisdom, individual wisdom. You know, it's why when you see, you know, artificial intelligence, you know, write music or, you know, create poetry or write a movie script, you know, that as you've seen some of those experiments out yeah. there, they become either eh, interesting short term experiments or quite frankly, laughable. Because, you know, they're, you know, they're just at a certain level, you can't you can mathematically give it sort of the ability to make up its own things. But mathematically, it can only operate within what it's been fed, what it's been told. 
And so if the wisdom doesn't exist yet, it, it can't have existed in order for the artificial intelligence to come up with it. But it's close. Oh, it's close. It's close. I mean, even the, yeah. that one, the one uh, experiment with the Indianapolis Orchestra, where the, the whole thing was written by a computer after a lot of you know, learning about what worked and what didn't work, and the, the human group orchestra played it. And it got a standing ovation. And then the software creator came out and said, this was created entirely by a computer. And started, they started booing. The audience started booing. Yeah. I did, it, you know, but here's the thing. <clears throat> well, I mean, we get into a whole discussion about art and, you know, can computers create art and, and all that kind of stuff. But, it, you know, it, music really more than just about any other art form is based in you know, a very set, you know, level of mathematics, right? I mean, there, you know, you can put notes together in a, in a particular way. And, you know, that, you know, you're saying that's easy. It's easier. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm, I'm saying it's easier, right? It's, it's a lot easier to have a computer write original music. And there are plenty, by the way, of, of, of websites and software programs out there that will compose melodies for you. Um, the 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 magic in music making comes from wh- the the imperfections that humans bring to it and that's in all in honesty i mean this just again this gets into a whole you know get into oliver sacks and sort of the brain and music and all this sort of thing you know perfection in mathematics is not is not necessarily great music um and and so i i'm a firm believer in that you know Yes, you may be able to get a, a piece of music composed by a computer that an orchestra can play, but it will never become classic like a Beethoven or a Mozart or a Bach or something like that because it's just it, the imperfections of the human mind and the human heart are not in it. Anyway, I, I get up. I, I get off. Yeah, I, you you is, know more about that than I do. The only thing is, is I wouldn't say never because maybe no, not never. Time. I mean, never. Yeah, right. I mean, right. I'm, I'm not. I, I don't mean to. Sp- presuppose that you can't <laughs> that you know that i never ever thought have I, yeah i never data, thought i could get a bagel know? to stay together but yeah right we'll exactly right that's... and we may have data from star trek emerge at some point who can actually <laughs> you know make a bagel the right way that's exactly right all right do all we have right. another story we do we have oh. one more to talk about here <clears throat> and again a fun fun one from a uh discussion philosophical discussion more than anything else this comes to us uh, courtesy of all places, uh, CoinDesk, um, which I'm going to ask you offline about why the hell you were sure. surfing yeah. CoinDesk. Well, I, I can I'll I can talk about Bitcoin for hours if you <laughs> yeah. wish me to. All yeah. right, uh, yeah. Should I invest? Basically, just yes or no. Uh, yes, I do believe. I believe everyone should have at least a small portion of the portfolio in there. You cryptocurrency, go. specifically Bitcoin. <clears throat> there you go. <clears throat> so. We have the story that opens up, but basically the headline is, your property rights should extend to social media. Uh Uh-oh. This will open up some interesting cans of worms here. Um, The idea that the article opens up with says, there are, to put it reductively, two schools of thought on the topic of property rights on internet platforms. The first argument goes a little like this. Systems like Facebook, Twitter, Google, and the like are private platforms run and administered by corporate entities, and those entities may control the contents of those platforms as they see fit. 
This extends to banning, censorship, arbitrary content removal, alteration, and so on. None of these internet oligopolies owe anyone a platform, and they have no obligation to amplify any particular voices. If you don't like it, build an alternative and compete in the free market. This is a very popular view expressed on the topic. Very occasionally you might hear an alternative dissenting opinion, and the other and the second argument goes a little like this. Internet oligopolies are not just social media platforms. They are novel, alternative jurisdictions where users settle and build social and commercial relationships. While they're not physically instantiated, they're genuine places with all the considerations that entails. Terms of service in these digital frontiers usually constitute legal systems, albeit poorly codified and unaccountable ones. What users do when they occupy handles and build out reputations on social graphs is to create property. Thus, censorship, deplatforming, and the like must be understood as eminent domain, and that's the key phrase there, uh, and expropriate, forget it, um, <laughs> rather than a mundane application of rules. Uh, it's early here, folks. Uh, understand, so these two things, which is basically, if, I re- if I'm even further reduce these arguments, one basically says Twitter, Facebook, Google, all those are private companies and can do what the hell they want, rented land. The other argument would be that all those places are now, because they've rented it for so long, we have squatters' rights and or sort of, uh, you know, what they might call common law rights as squatters, um, and some of that property belongs to us. Uh, it goes on, the article goes on to really, you know, describe a more nuanced approach to this. And it's a great article, by the way, um, that I think is fascinating. So what say you, where do you come down on this argument? What do you think? Well, I'm, I mean, you know, my take, I've always been, hey, you, you do anything on rented land that's, you know, and, and you at build your own an peril, right? Yeah. You build an audience at, on YouTube. I talked to how many YouTube uh, YouTubers, if I talk to out there, say, "Hey, great! Yeah, I like your fifty thousand or fifty million uh, subscribers you have on YouTube, but they're YouTubes, so you better figure out a way to port those over to your own database." And, and right. I think that's that's the strategy that you'd use on TikTok or Twitter or any of those other platforms. It's just, now this is just interesting. Do I ever think this is going to happen? No. Do I think it's possible? Well, one percent is possible. Then yes, I I absolutely do, because of the fact that there's and we talked about this before. There's a precedent. There's a precedent when we were uh, when we were moved east to west in the United States that somebody would take a piece of land and if you made that piece of land a little bit better in some way, specifically then by growing crops, that you had some sort of right over using that land if. Nothing was being done. So if you're from a content perspective, you can say, hey, I go, I went on LinkedIn and I've been creating this content and I made it a better place in some way. Do you have a right to that content that, that your username, your property? Well, I think personally, no. But is it possible? Yes, I guess it's possible if something, uh, you know, lots of change in the air. I guess there's a possibility of it. Could it be that... Facebook has some kind of a premium membership where if you pay on a monthly basis, a tax, quote unquote tax, if you will, could you then be allowed to own your property? Again, I think personally, no. But is it possible? I think it's just a really interesting argument. And I think everyone should read this article uh, because I think there's something there and you should know. Uh, you know, do you have any rights? I'd like to see how this evolves. I don't know. Do you think that there's a chance that this could ever, ever happen? No, I don't. Um, you know, I, I, 
I, I here's what I, I think. I still buy the first argument more than the second. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, because the equivalent is, you know, the thing about improving the land, um, you know, and that, and, and, and I totally hear what you're saying there, but the, but the thing about, you know, settlers and improving the land and how the government can come in and say, hey, listen, if you've improved it to such an extent that, you know, it makes all the land more valuable, then, you know, great, and we'll give you ownership of that land as, in, in return. Um, the challenge, of course, is that in the digital space, it's only worth what it is that you have it there today. In other words, if I pick everything up, if I pick all my content up, if I'm, you know, PewDiePie or, or you know, MatPat or, or, you know, whoever the YouTuber is, and I move it yeah. to another platform, I have basically removed all value of, of whatever improvement I did. Um, and probably not even just removed all the value. I've actually degraded the land. So the equivalent would be you set up a homestead in, you know, in, in, you know, somewhere in rural Colorado, somewhere in the 1880s. And then you go, you know, you build a well and you build a, uh, you know, you build a, a thriving mine and you, you know, you settle a little town and blah, blah, blah. And then suddenly you go, yeah, I think I'm going to move it to Idaho. And you basically pick up the mine and the well and the town and basically, you know, you, you basically deconstruct the earth as you move that thing to a new place. All those improvements go away. So should you have ownership rights? Uh, it's, a, it's a great argument there to be made. And so about why you shouldn't. And so yeah. if I'm Facebook or Twitter, I'm not terribly worried about that. Um, you know, I think you know, the, the ownership of the content is absolutely your property, et cetera, et cetera. What you're agreeing to typically on a, on a social media platform is that you're giving them the license to use that content pretty much however they want. Yeah. Um, and so in other words, you're building the mine, you're building the well, you're building the little town. And quite frankly, you're giving the government the ability to, tax it a little bit, you know, through the idea of advertising and you're giving them the ability to leverage your uh, mind, your well for the advancement of pulling other people in to that, you know, to that, to their, to their state or, you know, whatever metaphor you like here. And so that, but you're not giving over your property rights. So the, 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 the question for the, for those that would follow argument number two is, well, what property are we talking about? In other words, are, are we talking about that that I own the digital space? In other words, I own that namespace, or I own what is it that I own? Right? What is it? What it? What it actually is it that I would actually have ownership of, and what rights come along with that ownership? So anyway, I, I think it's a it's a fascinating, wonderful discussion to have over a glass of scotch, but it's not one that I see being terrible. Many, yeah, many yeah, glasses, many, many glasses, many of alcohols, all Fun, the alcohols. philosophical discussion, but not one that's likely to hit the reality of our world in, in, at any time soon. I would, yeah, but uh, the 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 rate and pace of change lately, you never know. Yeah, you, I, you know, look, you I, even you even you can own a little piece of Facebook. Well, that here's, follower here's is yours. Here's what would be interesting: would be for a competitor to Facebook, Twitter, or Google to emerge that offered that. In other words, come build your presence here, and we'll give you, you know, requisite percentage of ownership. 
Yeah, you could say that. You could say, hey, okay, 40% of this is going to be owned by the users, just like the Green Bay Packers. Right. That's exactly right. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, it's they're, the they're basically owned by media. the owned and operated by the users and the audience of the of the platform itself. So imagine, you know, if you're, you know, if you're, uh, you know, you're on YouTube and you have, you know, forty million, you know, in your audience. Well, that represents, I'm guessing, you know, I don't the math it will be completely off here, but just for the sake of ease, you know, that's one percent of the total audience thing. So you have a 1% ownership. So therefore you get a check every year for 1% of the revenue, which is blah, blah, blah. Basically, you know, you own, you own part of the platform that you help build. That would be an interesting model, actually. I think you should start that. <laughs> That's what yeah, I, think. I have other things to do. I got, <laughs> I got to keep Your up with Quibi, much over. less. Uh, oh, yeah, I know. Yeah. Quibi, 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 Quibi. Well, we're going to get that later. We, we are going to get to that. Well, right now, what we need to do is we need to talk about our wonderful sponsor, our, our beautiful, wonderful, amazing sponsor. Absolutely. If you haven't heard, the Content Tech Summit is now virtual content strategy for enterprise marketers. You need to register now. The event's going to be August 10th through 12th in 2020. And uh, I'm pretty sure that Robert Rose is going to be speaking. At the, are, are you going to be speaking at this event? I am. I've been fixing up my office and the whole thing. I'm oh, getting you're ready doing the job. whole doing, show. I got lights whole now. Shebang. I, yeah, lights, camera, action, my friends. It's going to be, yeah, it should be fun. It should, I'm looking forward to it. I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting to hang out with people and talk about tech and do all that stuff. I'm, you know, I'm, you know I will say this. In the last three months, one of the things that has truly been fun about all of the things that have happened has been my ability to get geeky with content. I mean, I have, you know, I've been spending, I've been going deep, you know, on, on, uh, on research and, and content and, you know, all that time that I was spending on airplanes, I'm now spending doing deep dive research. So I've, I got lots of stuff in the, I got lots of stuff in the, what do they call it? The powder keg or the, I don't know what, what, you know, your ammo, holster you have a lot of ammo there's no (laughs) doubt about it that you have ammo so everyone wants (laughs) anyway august 10th through 12 2020 contenttechsummit.com and the easiest you can go check out the agenda which you should and look at all the amazing speakers uh and presentations but if you're trying to figure out if content tech summit is for you it is the real strategic part of content marketing and also integrates a ton of different technology solutions and different approaches to using technology and integrating technology. So that's the way that I would look at it. Um, it is not for the super beginner. So if you're like, hey, content marketing 101, what is it? Don't go to this event. But if you're like, hey, I know about content marketing, I know that approach and I want to be the best at my company, in my uh, in my vertical industry, whatever the case is, and really understand this because I want to drive revenue and different monetization strategies, leveraging content marketing strategy, then I think Content Tech is for you. So go to contenttechsummit.com. Uh, and I really do, if you get a chance, go to that site, click on the agenda, click on the speakers, and I'm sure they can do a better job persuading you than I can. So August 10th through 12th, 2020. There we go. I there like we go. It. There we go. There we go. Coming All at right. ya. All right. So All right. let's uh, quickly move to the empirically proven favorite part of our show, which, of course, is our rants and rave section, where Joe and I go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave over makes us something that feels like we're bageling or something that makes us feel <laughs> like 
we're stuck uh, in something else. Um, anyway, so uh, I, why don't I go first because I know okay. what your I know what your commentary right. is, and I want to I want to listen to that, and I also want to play in it too. Um, but uh, and mine is just silly, so um, and yours is not silly. Um, so the I, first of all, of course, it wouldn't be uh, the new show without a Quibi update. Um, we will link this in the show notes. Of course, it comes courtesy of The Verge, and apparently, Quibi has now added Chromecast support for watching shows on the big screen. Now they have both. Now they, you know, a couple of weeks ago they did their AirPlay support for iOS and Apple, um, and now they're adding Chromecast uh, support as well. So that means you now can, through AirPlay, play videos on your TV of Quibi if you're so inclined, um, and now you can actually do that through your Chromecast if you're one of the ten people out there who still uses Chromecast. Um, you know, and then it goes on to talk about how the app had 1.7 million downloads in its first week, but that was largely due to the free promotions. It has not been growing uh, of late, and we'll see if this is too little too late. Um, the the uh, the new launches, by the way, are part of this pivot that the company now seems to be doing, which is moving into more television-like uh, apps. They still have not, by the way, uh, fixed the idea of sharing um, this across social media. So you're still not sharing the other story, which I won't link to, um, because it's quite frankly, um, you know, it requires registration and pay and there's a big paywall in front of it. So I'm not going to force you guys to go look at that, but basically talks about all of the critiques that you are getting, that these content creators are getting, uh, through the actual platform itself, which is a fascinating thing. Basically, the standards, the critiques from the audience and the critiques from, you know, the internal Quibi is apparently providing eh, not such a great environment for content creators to create content. So um, fascinating development there as well. Um, so there's your Quibi update for the week. My commentary, my rant, and I'll make this very, very quick, um, basically comes to us courtesy of AdAge. We said at the top of the show that we were going to talk about AdAge, and well, here we go. Um, this, by the way, is a uh, the article that we'll link to. I, I think it's a paid post. Um, I'm not sure if it's a paid post or just this, uh, you know, sort of some sort of sponsored thing that AdAge is doing these days. But anyway, the, the, the headline is transforming the TV market through audience as currency. And of course, you might as you might expect, that headline caught my attention. Um, the article uh, is written um, by uh, someone who is the uh, chief revenue officer for Xander, which is AT&T's uh, advanced advertising company. So just keep that in mind as you start to hear what the point of view is here. Uh, basically, it says, I believe this moment that we're in, many refer to it as the new normal, is going to be remembered at the time that we accelerated the shift to audience as a currency. And I'm like, yeah, dude, I'm in. And then he goes on to say, our current environment has forced the need for greater flexibility, accountability, powered by data and precision targeting and messaging that's more relevant and impactful to consumers. And I'm like, yes, you still have me. Over the last month, we've seen a groundswell of support for accelerating beyond traditional age and gender metrics to an audience-based approach as marketers seek to connect with consumers in new and more personalized ways. I'm like, I'm, I'm on fire now with this article. With the evolution of consumption patterns and underlying consumer's journey, what was once considered either a description Street branding or performance technique is now less defined as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm starting to say, what are you talking about? And basically, the, the article then goes on to talk about how the new advertising media model um, will basically be around buying audiences uh, in terms of intent 
um, instead of uh, actually using that first party data ourselves. In other words, they say media companies like ours, by the way, he says, will have all of this wonderful intent data and all of this data that we will basically track with all of our audiences and sell that access to advertisers who will now be able to target you based on your intent and based on your behavior other than just gender and metrics. And, you know, of course, that's where he goes off the rail for me. Um, my quick rant on this is, is that, you know, we can continue down this road uh, of looking at media companies as the only proprietary holder of trust and data with audiences and how we access those audiences, or we can start to do this ourselves. Um, I am in full-throated agreement that first-party data is absolutely one of the most valuable things that we can have now as marketers. But I think if we acquiesce that responsibility and that opportunity to the media companies like AT&T and all of these to say, hey, you've got access now to, you know, you can place a TV ad and target all the people who are in the buy decision for a new car. I think we're, we're losing a huge opportunity for us to grow in all the ways that we talked about even in this episode. So... That's, you know, so I, I go read the article. It's interesting um, for what they're saying here. But my lens that I look at this through is that yet again, Ad Age is basically serving as the mouthpiece of saying, you know, media companies and our ability to buy ever more granular segments of audiences uh, to be able to place paid media through is the only way we can go is a false choice. Anyway, that's my little rant. Well, in, in of course, as you pointed this out, this is a paid article. Yes, and yes, it's and very hard to tell actually that it is because the right. logo at the top. I have to click on what's this. Xander is a uh, let's see. This content is created by an Ad Age publishing partner. That's right. Find out more about this program. So this is paid native advertising, if you will, into Ad Age, and it's very hard to figure that out. And I'm just you know we've had this discussion long, long time ago. I don't want to talk about native advertising and how you should make sure that it is that people are clear about it. Frankly, I don't care to fight that battle anymore. Right. But geez, your advertising age, you're in the marketing industry. Right. You got to exactly. set a good example for it. Jeez. Yeah. Put it up there. This is paid. This has yep. been paid by someone else. This is not the opinions of the ad age editorial staff. That's all it takes. That's right. Thank you, because you didn't even you had to figure it out. I don't know. Maybe it's paid. Maybe it isn't. You're pretty good at this stuff. Anybody else gets up there, they don't know. That's right. So I'm kind of punchy today. By the yeah. way, <laughs> uh, and I don't. And by the way, and people that listen to this know that I'm pretty much clueless about most things. I had to look. At, bageling is a term. Oh well, there you uh, go. And and I'm on the Jewish English lexicon site. And it says, bageling is inserting a Jewish phrase or concept into a conversation in order to indicate that one is Jewish or to determine whether the other person is Jewish. And I'll give you some examples. They have them here. I thought my seatmate might be Jewish, so I bageled him by asking him if he was headed home for that hagem. Is that how you pronounce it? I guess so, um, yeah. Yeah. So, Will got bageled at the doctor's office. The doctor said she was taking Rosh Hashanah off, too. So... <laughs> I'm just saying, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm trying to I'm trying to use it in a an obviously the wrong context. So my apologies. Yeah. Now I got to come up with a new term because I thought it was the right term, but it's there not. It is. Bageling. So, wrong again. 
No. Wrong again. Yeah. yeah. All right. So back to uh, you know you know what I was bringing up here. I actually what's what's interesting is I found out that uh, Medill Professor Emeritus Don Schultz passed away. This is uh, I think he passed away on June fourth, and I found out from you on your Facebook post. Yeah. And I was totally heartbroken, uh, and I you know I wanted to share this information with everyone. Everyone who who is in marketing and you don't marketing and you don't know of Don Schultz, it is your responsibility as a marketer to find out, to read at least one of his books. My favorite is IMC. Then um, oh yeah, uh, that's that's marketing. the book. That's required. IMC. Reading. That's IMC. The next reading. generation. Go ahead and go get it. It's a big book. It's a textbook. That's what I use it as a textbook. Um, so Don, just quickly about Don, and then I want to tell you a story. So Don E. Schultz was Professor Emeritus of Integrated Marketing Communications at Northwestern University Medill School of Journalism, Media, Integrated Marketing Communications. He died June 4th, 86 years old. He was a pioneer in the field of integrated marketing communications. That does not give him enough credit. He is the godfather, the father of integrated marketing communications. He has done so much for the marketing industry and maybe better than anything else, he was one of the kindest people. Kind, uh, he was so kind, and he was so giving when he didn't have to be, and so generous with his time. Um, just to take you back a little bit, I was just getting started in publishing. Don, a lot of people don't, don't know this, but Don Schultz was a board member at one time for Pent Media, where I worked at. Uh, so he was a board member in the 90s. I started a Pent Media B2B publishing company, and the year 2000. And my mentor who I worked for at Penton Media, his name was Jim, Mc, Jim McDermott, still alive, doing well, living in North <laughs> Carolina. But uh, Jim said, look, Joe, if you're really serious about getting into marketing, you need to talk to Don Schultz. So I'm 20 nothing. I don't know anything about publishing or marketing or whatever. But I reach out to Don, not knowing. And I said, Don, I'm you know, I'm new to marketing, but I work at Penton. I know you have ties to Penton. If I come to Chicago, will you have dinner with me? By the way, the power of the ask is unbelievable because I didn't think he was going to respond to me. He said, he said, sure. And if, if I remember this correctly, Robert, he said, I'll be at Gibson's Steakhouse, which is <laughs> on Rush Street in Chicago. I'll be at Gibson's Steakhouse on, it was in the, it was in May or June, like May 20th. Uh, and I'll be there at 5.30. I'll see you there. And I'm like, oh, my God, I better get to Chicago. <laughs> so I was in Cleveland at the time. So I I actually uh, made it, you know, took a couple sales calls while I was there, met him. He was there. He was so generous with his time. He loves, he loves a good steak and sat down and we started our relationship. And I picked the brain of a genius for an hour, an hour and a half. What was great about after that, you know, he basically told me, uh, look, if it's not the four P's. If you're into traditional marketing, you are really going to have a tough time with this marketing thing. It's all about what well, you just you just talked about. It's all about audience building. It's all about really figuring out the needs and wants of your customers and delivering on those. And I, that's something that was exciting to me from a marketing standpoint. And we remained, I wouldn't call us friends, but definitely contacts. I would email him every once in a while to get his opinion on something. Anytime that, you know, when you and I did Killing Marketing or, or my other books, he was always there to give a testimonial of, uh, of the book from his perspective. 
and always very generous from that standpoint. He spoke at Content Marketing World. I can't, but I think it was 2013. Yeah, that he spoke at Content Marketing World. Yeah. Uh, he was having trouble walking at that time, but but man, was he! I mean, he was on it, and he wowed that audience. And most of that audience didn't know who Don Schultz was. That's right. Uh, which is shame on us. So that's why one of the reasons why. Um, you know, I wanted to make sure everyone knew about Don Schultz. And I reached out to Heidi Schultz uh, right after I found out he passed away. She sent the nicest uh, note to me back and said how much Don enjoyed working with me. And it was just it was just very touching. So I just want to make sure everybody knows that uh, Don, we wouldn't be where we are right now. Content Marketing Institute would not exist if there wasn't a Don Schultz. And I always made sure he knew that. Um, so I wanted to make sure everyone here uh, knows that as well. So we'll put the the obituary from the Medill School on, in Northwestern uh, on the in the show notes. But basically, just go out and get IMC Next Generation and read it. It's still yep. very very relevant, or any one of Don's books. Uh, just just a wonderful ambassador for marketing. But the best thing is, he was just a wonderful human being. He just really was, and it's so well said. You know, the, and the fact that, you know, so there are four textbooks, I would call them, that to this day are on my shelf um, and are the books that are dog-eared. They have, you know, post-it notes. They've got everything in it. The four books are Marketing Imagination by Theodore Levitt. There is The Practice of Management by Peter Drucker. There's Marketing Management by Kotler. And there's IMC, Integrated Marketing Communications by Don Schultz. And I was a huge fanboy before you and I even met. And then yeah. when you said, and then when you like you introduced him to me, uh, one the first time I met him was at the Content Marketing World, and then the second time I got to meet him was when we were doing the filming for uh, a Story of Content, the documentary. That's right, yeah, and, the documentary. Oh yeah. my god! And just to sit with him and talk and just listen to him, the, you know, Professor Schultz. Uh, it's just. It was one of the highlights of my life. And so, yeah, he, he will be missed. And he was a giant in the industry for sure. Absolutely. So uh, and, and prayers and thoughts out to to his uh, family. The one thing I do want to share this with you because I think it's so cool. And I know she doesn't care. But when let me bring up Heidi's email real quick when she said to me, she her last line was. Um, let's see. Uh, da, 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 my. It just says, she says, my heart is full of gratitude for the life we shared. And these two really loved each other. Yeah, and she she wrote a couple jokes in there too in the in our in the email back and forth. But uh, it's just you know you don't run across people that are that beloved nope. very often. Um, and he was the real deal. I mean, I I just it was a couple years ago we were at some crazy business publishing event and we were sitting on the couch. We both had a drink in our hands and he's. He was give he was razzing me for the term content marketing. He's like, yeah. "Where'd you come up with that?" You know, yeah, right. it's just like, of course, Don. It's like integrated marketing was taken. Thank you. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> yeah, IMC was already taken. Thank you very much. Yeah. So anyway, all right. Well, where are you this week, my friend? You're at home. Uh, are you getting yeah, out at all? Absolutely home. No, 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 nothing. Uh, nothing crazy. Uh, we have our big. Orange Effect Foundation, as you know, you've been so giving to the, the cause. Orange Effect Foundation is holding a 100 holes of golf marathon event where 30 golfers are coming together on June 22nd. And over a 12-hour period, uh, my goal is to golf 
a hundred holes. So hopefully I survived the event, but it's been our best fundraiser ever. Um, and if it's still, still available, go to the orange effect.org and click on a hundred holes. If you'd like to give and sponsor myself as a golfer or one of the other crazy 29 golfers that are making this happen. Uh, and the short story to that, as you know, Robert is, is that we're struggling with fundraising, um, in our other, uh, events that we had just because of what, what happened with COVID-19. And so we had to get creative. So in this event, we can do total social distancing. Everyone gets their own cart. There's only 30 people on the course at a time and we can raise money, uh, for a really good cause, especially right now. A lot of people forget, uh, speech therapy for kids with speech disorders has really been shaken up because routines are gone. Uh, you can't meet face to face. Parents are home, all, all kinds of stuff. And so uh, we have to fill a gap here uh, and pay for their speech therapy. So that's what we're trying to do. So nice. that's so that's what we're working on next week and a half. Yeah. Well, I'm not. Doing, you? I'm not yep. doing anything nearly as impactful uh, for the community. <laughs> I'm I'm basically working on. Uh, we've got a couple of clients now that we're we're neck deep in working on. Um, got a couple of uh, online webinars, and of course, uh, working with CMI to get um, everything going for content tech. So it's uh, it's a busy it's a busy 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 week uh, over the next week and a half. And um, yeah, I'm happy to be busy. That's for sure. Yeah, it's good. Getting getting yeah. a little bit back to normal. Yeah, exactly. So, exactly. All whatever, right, folks. Whatever normal. Yeah. That is it. Um, we are signing off. And if you like this episode, number 238, that's right, 238, if you can believe that, subscribe, won't you? Resubscribe. Um, get a lot of new shiny subscriptions for yourself to our little show. Thank you so much for listening to the show. We are, if you're just tuning in for the first time, we publish twice a month now or basically every time we feel like publishing. But uh, on average, it's about uh, every couple of weeks. Um, and uh, for more of Joe, if you want to get much more of Joe, get his newsletter. He, you can find that at joepolizzi.com slash newsletter or just go to joepolizzi.com and you'll find it. It's really easy because it's a beautiful little website. <laughs> and if you're interested in my stuff, if you're interested in geeking out and content a little more, go check out the company website. It's contentadvisory.net, uh, where we talk about all things content strategy, content marketing, uh, and digital experiences. And of course, hashtag us up, won't you? This old marketing, um, hashtag us up with story ideas, with uh, all sorts of things. Um, you know, if you're a PR agency, sure, send more stuff about how we should have more guests on the show or how your person would be a great guest on the show because all the guests that we have on this show are so wonderful. Um, <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> a little bit of a rant there for some of the PR <laughs> folks out there. Yeah. Um, we don't do guests, just FYI. Anyway, all of that, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. And until then, remember, it's your story to tell. Tell it well. We'll see you in a couple of weeks on This Old Marketing.